Welcome you to 1 Timothy. We'll be studying chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening. Let's pray together. Father, we do just lift up the, this Uganda trip. We pray for safety and that all of their travels would go well. That you would use their ministry when they're on the plane, when they're on the bus, when they're in the hotels, when they're in Gulu. We pray for their protection. We pray for their families that are back home, that you would guard them from the attack of the enemy. And God, we see that you do amazing things in your word when we go out in faith. And we know you haven't changed. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so would you move in a powerful way for your glory, Lord, to display your glory to all. And as we open up your word tonight, God, we come with a heart of expectation that you would bring challenge, that we would look into our own souls and that we would grow by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Windows, windows, windows. No, this is not an advertisement for Microsoft. What do windows do? They give an opportunity for you to see out, but also for others to see in. One thing I know about windows is they don't lie. Whatever's inside is going to be seen when that window is open, when the blinds are lifted. I look at these 10 verses that we're going to study tonight, and it's a window to our life. It's a window to our heart. It's a window to our soul because it deals with two topics that we deal with every day of our life. Two topics that we deal with every day. The first is work. We're going to look at our actions and our attitudes in regard to our work. And then also, we're going to look at our attitudes and our actions in regards to money. That's something that you deal with, whether you like it or not, every single day is work and money. I think there's a great challenge for us in these 10 verses. So join me in verse 1. It says, Let as many bondservants or as under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. When we look at the context, we know that bondservants is speaking of slaves. The Roman Empire had anywhere from 30 million to 50 million slaves. It's estimated that in the major cities, which Ephesus was, that 30% of the population would be slaves. This is an issue that the church of Ephesus was dealing with. Each week, as Timothy would pastor, there would be those that found themselves as slaves. And Paul here is not advocating slavery. He's not saying that God is for slavery. We know God's heart is that we would be owned by him, that we would never be owned by an individual. So that's not what Paul is teaching here, but he has to address it because it is a reality. What do these slaves do? What would God have them to do? And we find it here in verse 1. It says that if they're under the yoke of their masters, that their masters are worthy of honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Paul's saying, you know what? Even though you're in this very difficult situation, not even a, a situation that would be God-honoring, that would be God's choice for you, is honor your master. Because there's something bigger that's at stake than even your own personal freedom. 
and it is the glory of God, that the name of God would not be blasphemed. Can you imagine what the reputation of God would be like throughout the Roman Empire if every Christian slave decided that they were going to run from their master? All of a sudden, the name of Christ would be run through the mud. God wants to change the Roman civilization from the inside out as these slaves are good workers honoring God by honoring their masters. Hopefully the masters come to know Christ as their savior and slavery comes to an end. But Paul says you need to stay put and you need to honor your master so Jesus is not blasphemed. Church, this is countercultural. God's more concerned whether people go to heaven or hell than your comfort. And if these slaves had to give up their comfort in order for the name of Jesus Christ to be glorified, who are we to challenge God when God says, give up some of your comfort for my glory. Give up some of your comfort so that the name of Jesus Christ doesn't get blasphemed. There's a lot of people that will back away from this verse because it's too strong. It's absolutely strong. It goes against everything that we would like to think and believe, but God says to these slaves, stay put. I want you to stay put for my name, for my glory, not because I approve of slavery, but because I want these slave masters to be one to Jesus Christ. And then also, and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Remember, doctrine is what we believe about God, salvation, and how we're to live our lives. So these slaves, as they honor their masters, they're honoring the teaching of Jesus Christ. How does this apply to us? Thankfully, we don't deal with slavery. There's not any of us that find ourselves to be slaves this evening. It is a misnomer that slavery no longer exists. Some say that there's more slavery today than there's ever been before. Human trafficking is a huge issue. It's happening on the front range of of Colorado. But thankfully, tonight, I don't know of any of us that would find ourselves in, in being a slave in this sense, but you may have a boss where you go to work for 40 to 60 hours a week and you feel like a slave. And everything inside of you has been crying out to God saying, God, get me out of this situation. I can't honor this person. And you find yourself now having a bad work ethic because you don't respect your boss. And you've entered into the conversation around the water cooler about the boss and how he treats everyone. Maybe he does deserve it, but that's not the way that God would have you treat him so that the world could see that you love Jesus Christ, so that the name of Jesus Christ is not blasphemed. My pastor growing up, John Corson, he put it this way, the world is looking for many reasons to not believe in Jesus Christ. Don't give them one by the way that you treat your boss. Don't give them a reason to not believe in Jesus Christ with your attitude and your actions towards your boss. If it goes something like this, that you're taking breaks that are not deserved, it's not your lunch break, it's not your 15-minute break, and you find yourself taking extra time, the boss's time, the company's time, to get into the gospel of John while you're on the John, okay? And you come out of the restroom and you go, I had a great time with the John, wink, wink, and you're talking about the gospel of John, but you know it wasn't your break time, it wasn't your lunch time. The name of Jesus Christ is blasphemed. 
The name of Jesus Christ is blaspheming when we're supposed to be working hard, but we find ourselves, again, taking the boss's time to get in some theological debate with another Christian. You know what the theological debate on the job is? Is how good of a worker are we? That's not the time with another believer to have this debate over predestination and free will. You operate your free will and you be a good worker to Jesus Christ and you say, this isn't the time for us to sort this out. We'll do it on our own time. We'll do it on our lunch hour. We'll do it at the end of our work time. But we're here and we're gonna honor God by honoring our boss. We should be able to look at our work ethic and also tie it back to our belief in doctrine and tie it back to our love for Jesus Christ. It also applies if you have a boss who's a Christian in verse two. And those who have a believing master, and again, this is a slave master context, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So the slave is a Christian, the master is a Christian, and the slave very quickly could start to go, I don't need to respect you. I don't need to honor you. We're both equals in Christ. Who are you telling me what to do? Or the master is kind, and so they begin to abuse that kindness and go, well, I know that the master is not going to hold me accountable because he's another believer in, in Christ. And what Paul's exhortation is, no, you serve that believing master because believers are benefited. The beloved are benefited. Now teach and exhort these things. And maybe you do work for a Christian boss and your employer is a Christian and somehow you've started to despise them in some way. You've began to minimize their authority in your life in the workplace because they're another believer and you know that you're equals in Christ. And so for some reason, you've began to get maybe a little bit too, too comfortable and you've actually started to look down upon them. Or maybe you know because your brothers and sisters in Christ that it's going to be a little bit harder for him to fire you. Or maybe he is kind and he is benevolent. And so instead of that motivating you to work harder, you're abusing it. Uh, he's not going to notice if I come in 15 minutes late. He's not going to notice. She's not going to notice if I come in a half an hour late, if I, if I leave a, an hour, a half an hour early and those, those type of things. And those are the places that we go and we say, Lord, help me to honor you in the work that you have given me to do. If my boss is an unbeliever, if my boss is a believer, I want to honor you in my work ethic. How do you think the work ethic is in the United States of America? Well, Forbes, you guys are familiar with, with Forbes, right? They did a study in September of 2013 of how much time do people waste at work. And there's a lot of different ways that we can waste time at work. Personal phone calls, surfing the web, searching for new job opportunities. That's kind of a slap in the face right there. <laughs> Gossiping by, by the water cooler, shopping online, Amazon, exploring social networks, checking personal email, the list goes on and on. But number one, Forbes magazine says that's the internet. The internet's the number one way that we waste time while we're at work. 64% of employees visit non-related websites each day. So that's the majority of all employees are gonna take work time and they're gonna also go on to ESPN. It's March Madness, baby. You know, we've gotta check in. And we actually know that work 
productivity does go down in March Madness. If you're not following me, that's okay. Just go to ESPN and you'll know. You'll know what March Madness is. So 39% of all employees will spend one to two hours a week on non-related work websites. 29% two to five hours, 21% six to 10 hours. So 21% of all employees are spending an average of six to 10 hours. 10 hours is a good chunk of your work week. And then 8% 10 to plus hours. Now, if this is hitting home for you, if something's happened at work where you don't think you get paid enough or you're not appreciated enough or you don't like your boss or you do like your boss and you've gotten a little bit too comfortable so you've gotten slack in your work ethic, then this is a window into your soul. This is a window into who you are as a person and respond to it. And if you look at that window and you see a good work ethic that honors the Lord, then don't lose sight of that. That's an important thing in your life. If that window reveals some area of improvement, then respond to what the word of God is saying and apply yourself and say, okay, Lord, I want to work in a way that honors you. The scriptures tells us whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord. So that takes us even from the workplace where you get a paycheck to everything that our hands find to do in our homes, wherever we are throughout the whole entire day. Before we move on, let me read this verse to you out of Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 8. It says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Ultimately, you're working for the Lord. Ultimately, you're serving the Lord. How many of you guys had to take gym, gym class, PE, physical education? All right, a lot of you guys either didn't want to raise your hand or you got out of it somehow. You didn't have to take PE. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? They don't do PE in Missouri? shame on them. We probably all took PE and had to endure physical education. Remember the push-ups that you're doing and the gym teacher and he's walking around and when you get the eyes of the gym teacher, you're doing legitimate push-ups. They're the real thing. And then as soon as the gym teacher's eyes go this way, down go the knees. You know, and I'm just hardly doing them at all. And then here comes back the eyes of the gym teacher. Perfect form and it's this game that's happening and taking place. And if that's what we do at work, well, the boss is watching. You know, and then, oh, the boss is gone. All right, party time. Time to surf the internet. Time to talk about this, talk about that. It's a good exhortation for us to apply ourselves in work. Verse three, if anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to doctrine which accords with godliness. So if someone is teaching in a contrary way that your work doesn't matter, if they're contradicting this teaching that Paul has just laid out, then Paul gives this warning about them. He also gives us a test for sound teaching. We need that. We need a filter. How do you know if someone is teaching God's word, is teaching sound doctrine? So the first is wholesome words. Is the teaching wholesome? Is it whole? 
and more specifically, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear a teaching, you should be running that teaching through this. Does it line up with who Jesus is and what Jesus said? And if it doesn't line up with who Jesus is and what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, then you can reject it as not being a teaching from God. And also, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. And so, someone that's teaching sound doctrine is going to teach the importance of living a godly life. Not a godly life to try to earn or deserve salvation, but because we've received the grace of God, we've received the love and acceptance of God, that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. It's that understanding that God loves us so much that we want to live a godly life to be close to his heart, that it's his power working through us. But if you're listening to a teaching and they're minimizing the importance of a godly life or making fun of a godly life or trying to say that a godly life doesn't matter, then that's a good way for you to understand that it's not sound teaching. So what's our filter? Is it wholesome? Does it line up with Christ? Does it line up with godliness? Now describing the false teacher in verse four, he's proud knowing nothing. Paul has no problem calling it as it is, does he? He says, this guy's proud. He's arrogant. But even worse than being arrogant is he knows nothing. This is a terrible combination to be prideful and to know nothing. So here he is thinking that he's so wonderful, but in essence, he doesn't know anything. But this is his passion in verse four. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions. Look for the passion of a teacher. What are they passionate about? And if they're passionate about disputes and arguments, that this is what they love. They love to stir up debate. They love to divide the body of Christ. Look at the fruit of what comes out of when they spend time with people. If when they spend time with people, there's envy, there's strife, there's fighting, there's evil suspicions, then you can know them by their fruits, right? You can go, you know what? I can see that this is a false teacher, that this is someone that isn't teaching sound doctrine. These are important things to make sure that they don't enter into our lives as well. Envy, you know, longing for something that God has given to someone else. Strife, this continual fighting, these evil suspicions where we're walking around thinking the worst of everyone else. In verse five, useless wranglings, to wrangle is to argue with anger. This is useless anger in arguing. So that is the mode and the attitude in which they argue. The useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. So this false teacher has a mind that's corrupt and he's bankrupt of the truth. Destitute is lacking something needed. It's starving of the truth. So here you have someone who claims to know the truth, but in essence, they're destitute of the truth. They're bankrupt for spiritual truth. And here's their false assumption, who suppose that godliness is a means to gain. You ever struggled with that or thought about that? In the back of your head, you're going, man, you know, for the last year, the last two years, I've really been living a pretty godly life, and I still drive a junker of a car. I thought for some reason when I started following Jesus Christ that at least I'd have a, a nice car. And then here are these, well, I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it. Here's these jerks that don't 
want anything to do with Christ, that are living a godless life, and their car's pretty bling bling. It's it's pretty pimped out, really. And I, I thought things would turn out a little bit different for me. I thought if I if I lived a a godly life that I'd be getting some promotions at work and that's just not what's happening. And, and then once again, here's this ungodly guy that keeps getting promoted and I just can't seem to catch a break or, oh, I thought if, if I lived a godly life that God would bring me a supermodel for a wife by now. I'm just, I'm just still single. I, don't, I thought godliness was a means to, to, to gain. And all of a sudden you find yourself really stumbled, don't you? So what's the motivation for godliness? Is the motivation for godliness what we can get? That we're going to live a, a godly life and then God's going to owe us something? We want to live a godly life so we can get close to God. So we can have a greater knowledge of, of who he is. Godliness in and of itself is worthwhile. And the false teachers, they've assumed this. And in fact, they've even used this to their, to their advantage. They've seen the people of God as a means to their own gain. They've snuck their way into the pastorate. They've snuck their way to be a teacher. And they're thinking, I can make a lot of money off of this. I can fleece the people of God. Instead of wanting to feed the people of God, they're wanting to take from the people of God. Now notice there's a command here at the end of verse five that says, from such, withdraw yourself. So we should be able to spot a false teacher by what they're saying, the fruit that's coming out of their life, their assumptions that they're making, and then go, you know what? I need to stay away from that person. That's hard to do as a Christian because the very nature of Christ is to love people, and so we want to be around people, but when you identify someone that is a false teacher that's trying to fleece you, that's trying to rip you off, that's trying to do all of these things to you, you have no other option but to withdraw yourself. I think of it this way. What happens if you're going to hang out with a grizzly bear? Nothing good, right? Don't enter into that fight. And you may take on the argument with a false teacher. You may take on the wrangling with a, a false teacher. But it's only going to end up in destruction, so you have to withdraw yourself. This begins to open up the second window for us. The first window was work. The second window is money. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with the mindset of I'm satisfied in Christ is great gain. Not godliness and God, I'm expecting you to give me more, but godliness with a heart that says, God, I am satisfied in what you have provided for me right now. Contentment. Can you say tonight where you sit that you're content in what God has given to you? You may be in a season where you're abased and it's financially difficult, the provision's low, but your satisfaction's in Christ and you say, I'm, I'm content. You may be in a time where you're abounding and the Lord is blessing. Do you find yourself content in the blessing that God gives? We're so sinful that a lot of times when God does bless and we're abounding, we want just a little bit more, just a little bit more. If you were fortunate enough to get a 3% raise at work, in your mind, you're walking back to your vehicle going, why couldn't it be five? Instead of going, God, thank you so much for a 3% 
raised. It can be difficult to find contentment in abounding and also in abasing. Paul in Philippians 4 verse 1 through 13 says this. He says, now I, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says that he's learned I've learned that whatever state I'm in. Notice that Paul had seasons where he was abounding and seasons of suffering and of great difficulty. That's gonna be life, church. You're not necessarily doing anything wrong if you go through a time where you're abased. It's not because of us that the Lord brings us into a season of blessing that we're abounding. We're gonna go through those ups and downs of life. And Paul says whatever state I've I've learned to be content. Listen, contentment has to be learned. Because covetousness, complaining, which are the enemy to contentment, is what comes natural to us. And you're saying, how do you know? Have you ever met a content two-year-old? Have you ever met a content three-year-old? Now, they have moments of contentment, right? But in general, if they see something that they want, they're going to throw a fit in an attempt to try to get it. I'm getting a real kick out of our son, Wyatt. He'll be two in June, so he's about 20, 21 months, somewhere around in there. And he does this regularly. He'll have oatmeal in his bowl, and I'll be eating oatmeal for breakfast as well. And he'll decide that that oatmeal in his bowl is not satisfactory to young Wyatt. And he gets discontent. So you figure he must be done with his breakfast. So you get him out of his chair, wipe him down. He gets running around the kitchen. I sit down to return back to my bowl of oatmeal. And Wyatt comes and he looks into my bowl. And my oatmeal looked so much better than his ever did. But it came from the exact same pot, from the exact same stove, has the exact same ingredients But to young Wyatt, what's in my bowl looks better than what's in his bowl. And I'm kind of a sucker for him. I've got a little bit of a soft spot for him. And so I'll start giving him some oatmeal from from my bowl. And he'll eat like he's never seen food before in his life. I'm going, son, what just happened here? You didn't like what was in your bowl. And how many times is God saying, son, Eric, what are you doing here? You can look across the street and long for something else in somebody else's life, and I've already given it to you, and you're not enjoying it and being content and being satisfied in it. So it's something that's learned. It's not something that comes naturally. What's the source of our contentment? It's Jesus. In Hebrews 13, 5, Jesus says, let your life be without covetousness, for I have said I will never leave you or forsake you. Be content with the things you have. Jesus says you can be content with the things you have or you don't have because I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm enough. Until we put our eyes on Jesus, we're always gonna be discontent. It doesn't matter how far you go and work. It doesn't matter how nice of a house you get. It doesn't matter all those things that you think will make you satisfied. It's only Jesus that's gonna satisfy you. 
And if you have a hard time accepting that or believing that, some homework tonight is go read Ecclesiastes. Solomon tried it all outside of his relationship with God. Then he said, this is the sum of all things, to fear God and to keep his commandments. I gotta get back to being satisfied in Jesus. When I'm looking to him, then my heart can be content. So godliness, when it meets contentment, it's great gain because godliness with contentment can never be taken away from us. Verse seven, for we have brought nothing into this world. Is that true? You guys were all born naked, weren't you? Absolutely, for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. A U-Haul doesn't follow a Hertz, does it? Absolutely not. There was a very wealthy man who was grieving over the fact that he couldn't take any of his wealth with him to heaven. An angel came and visited him. He says, you know, I'm excited about going to heaven, but honestly, I'm pretty disappointed I can't take any of my material possessions with me. So would you please ask God if he'd make an exception for me? Angel says, well, I know the policy. It's written in the employee handbook, but I'll ask God and maybe he'll make an exception for you. God says, sure, give him one suitcase. He can bring one suitcase into heaven. So he gets excited. He starts packing. You guessed it. He put gold in his suitcase. Dies with his suitcase, goes up to heaven. Who guards the gate of heaven? At least when it comes to jokes, it's always Peter. So Peter says, hey, what's the deal here? You can't have a suitcase up here in heaven. He says, well, you go talk to the boss. You go talk to God. He gave me the exception. Sure enough, God says, let him in with his suitcase. Peter says, you, you can take your suitcase in, but I've got to do an inspection and make sure and, and see what's in there. And he opens it up and he says, you brought asphalt. You brought asphalt up here. Because in heaven, the streets are paved with gold, right? So here he is thinking he's got something so valuable, but in heaven, it's asphalt. The streets are paved with gold. What are you really going to take to heaven that has any value from a material sense? Is gold going to be valuable in heaven? Is the almighty dollar of the United States of America going to be valuable in heaven? I mean, it's laughable when we really stop and think about it. It has, it has no value. So here's the amazing thing with money is you can take money and material possessions and send it forward to heaven, laying up treasures in heaven that will really matter by taking money and material possessions and investing it in the kingdom. Your house can't make it to heaven, but you can use your home to invest the things of Christ and those people that you invest in can make it to heaven. You can take money that God has given to you here on earth and say, I'm not going to spend it all on my own needs, but I'm going to make sure to give to the work of God because I'm investing in something that is eternal. And so this is a message to us. You, you can't take it with you. So why not invest those material things now for that eternal investment? Verse 8 is challenging. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. If you've got food, you've got clothes, be content. It doesn't even mention a roof over our head. We look at our needs, and God looks at our needs as entirely two different things. He says, did you eat today? You got clothes? You, you can be content. With those things, be content. 
This is what I've found in my life when it comes to contentment. If I'm not content with what God has given and provided today, and this is in all aspects of my life, I'm not gonna be content even if my circumstances change for the better. Because as soon as I get to that better circumstance, it's not good enough. And now there's something else, and there's something else, and something else. Whether it's financial or relational, you fill in the blank. Contentment's gotta start here. Food and clothing. Food and clothing, we can be content. Verse nine, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. This is a strong warning. If you desire to be rich, if this becomes the passion of your life, how do I be rich? How do I be rich? How do I have a lot of money? Money is gonna be the source of happiness. Money's life, money is contentment. Notice what happens, you'll fall into temptation. Simply by having the desire to be rich, you will look into places that you had never looked before. Without the desire to be rich, it's not near as tempting to cheat on your taxes. It's coming up, isn't it? Tax day. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? But if you've got this intense desire to be rich and you sit down to do your taxes, all of a sudden it becomes crazy, tempting to steal. One of the things that breaks my heart is you read it, I read it, you find in churches that there's people in leadership that are trusted with God's money and they end up stealing, sometimes in the range of very large amounts of money. And they're trusted. And they've had a longevity in the church. How did they ever get to that place where they go, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and take some out of the offering box. No one's going to see. And I'm going I'm to put it here. I'm, I'm in this trusted place. I'm in, I'm in this trusted position. Well, they've got the desire to be rich. And with the desire to be rich, then there comes temptation that they never would have been in before. Also with the desire to be rich is a snare. It's a trap. Please see that. If you don't think this is serious, it's going to trap you. It's going to snare you. It's going to be something that gets a hold of you that you can't let go of. It may already be that way in your heart. You haven't given in to the temptation, but money's got a hold of you. Money is your master. It's a snare. And then many foolish and harmful lusts. Notice what those harmful lusts do. They drowned men in destruction and perdition. Perdition is that loss for eternity. Some come to the place of eternal damnation because their love was money. Jesus put it this way, and he said, you can't serve two masters. It's gonna be God or money. Which is it? But you can only have one master. And right now, how do you know? I mean, how do you really know? What's the window really telling you about your own heart and what's your own life? Go home and look at your spending. And this isn't going to be fun to do, but go home and look at your spending. And what you'll find in your spending is your spending reveals your priority and your passion. Our money goes where our heart is. And that's why God in his love, he encourages us to give. God doesn't need our money. He's not broke. But it's the best way for God to free his kids up of greed. Don't you do it with your own kids? They get to the place where they're earning allowance. The worst thing that you can do to your kids is go, 
Here's your allowance. It's all yours. Do whatever you want to do. Whatever your greedy little soul says to do, just do it. You want to buy a bunch of candy and make diabetes for yourself? Just go for it. Do it. It's your money. It's your happiness. Just go for it. What do we try to do as, as kids? Well, it'd be a good idea for you to, to tithe to God's work, to give to God's work. <clears throat> give something away where you're not thinking about yourself. You might want to save because if you save up, then you might have some real needs or there might be some wiser way for you to spend this money. <clears throat> and so God, in the same way, he encourages us to tithe. He encourages us to give gifts because it frees our souls from greed. It frees us from this desire to be rich. Where do you start? For some, you might go, man, I hear what you're saying, but I feel so overwhelmed my, by my current financial situation. There seems to be no way out. First step first is honor God and give the first fruits to God. Talk it over with God and decide some amount that you're gonna choose to give to the work of the Lord cheerfully. You know our heart as a church. Our heart as a church is not after money. We don't take an offering. There's offering boxes in the back because we want giving to be between you and the Lord. But having said that, giving is important and it's biblical. And so if you're looking to turn around your finances, start in that place and it's gonna be a step of faith, but say, I'm gonna start with the first fruits. I'm gonna honor God. And then a great idea is whatever you've gotta do is try to save up $1,000 and get it in the bank. Because if you're not in that place, there's tires are gonna go flat, brakes are gonna go out and you're gonna have to go into debt, aren't you? And so say, all right, if I've got to sell this, if I've got to get rid of this, if I've got to pick up a few hours here, husbands and wives make a plan, we're, we're going to try to get $1,000 that are, are set aside. Make that commitment to say, we're going to live within our means. We're, we're not going to live off of credit cards and start to pay off those credit cards, the bondage of those, those credit cards. Well, where do I start? I'm going to first fruits, $1,000. I'm going to save up that $1,000. And then you take your smallest debt. Say you have a credit card where you owe $500. You have a student loan that's $2,000. You have some furniture that you put on credit that's $1,500. You start there and you pay that one off. And then when you get that one paid off, say the monthly payment was $50. Now you've got an extra $50 to go to Chick-fil-A more. Really, that's... <laughs> No, take that extra $50 and put it towards that next debt. And all of a sudden, you're making a bigger payment on the next one. And before you know it, you're making these baby steps towards financial freedom. But this is what I've found. As you start in this direction of being responsible unto the Lord, how you manage money says something about your character, just like your work life. So you start to honor God in it. And God will begin to work in that area of your life. But a lot of times we want to take the spiritual and dismiss it from the physical. And we say, well, this is my relationship with God, but it has nothing to do with money. And God, our relationship with him, it impacts every part of our lives, especially the physical, and say, Lord, I want to honor you in my finances as well. Look at the heart and make sure our heart is not getting to this place of desiring to be rich. Our last verse tonight for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice, it's not money that it's the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Many have misquoted this verse. 
If you look at what's the core of evil, it's the love of money. People are desiring with greed to have more money and then it produces this evil inside of them for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness. Their love of money has overtaken their love for God and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is a Bible study that can save us from a world of hurt, a world of hurt. If we allow God to do a work in our hearts to free us from the love of money, to free us from the desire to be rich. And it's not something that you just deal with once and then it's put behind you because it's always got this lure to come back and hook us and say, Lord, no, I, I wanna be free from this. So what's the window telling you? What's the window saying about my life as you look inside? What's my attitude towards my boss? How's my work ethic? Maybe the Lord's wanting to bring changes in that. Am I desiring to, to be rich? Do I have the love of money? Here's the challenge as we head into this new week. Is God, I want to honor you in my work. Whatever work God has given you to do in the home, outside of the home, we all have different circumstances. God, I want to honor you in work. And then I want to also honor you in the money that you have provided. And please, Lord, help me to be free from the love of money because it's the root of all kinds of evil. Let's stand and pray.